0: Welcome to GovInnovator. I'm Andy Feldman. Raj Chetty of Harvard University joins us today to talk about why public leaders should pay attention to and draw on insights from behavioral economics. Here's a clip.
1: Some of this, I think, is just going back to almost common sense thinking the way a layperson would and not necessarily somebody who's thinking about policy issues all day. And, you know, I think that brings a different perspective on these problems.
0: In his recent keynote speech at the American Economic Association meeting, Raj Chetty argued that tools from the behavioral sciences, such as behavioral economics, can expand the scope of tools that are available to policymakers. He's a professor of economics at Harvard University and has been widely recognized for his research that combines empirical evidence and economic theory to help design more effective government policies. He joins us by phone from Boston. Raj, welcome.
1: Thank you. Good to be with you, Andy.
0: Start us off with an overview for those who are less familiar. What is behavioral economics?
1: My interpretation of behavioral economics is that it brings insights from psychology and other social sciences into the analysis of key economic questions. So traditionally, economists think about tools like taxes and price changes and so on, and how that affects economic behavior in the macroeconomy. The idea of behavioral economics is that People's behavior may be just as much influenced by psychological forces, things like present bias or inattention or aversion to losses. And by incorporating those insights into our models, we can develop better policies that ultimately improve social welfare.
0: One of the tools that you mentioned in your speech was defaults, meaning setting the default option for a policy. In your speech, you noted, quote, defaults make it feasible to achieve outcomes that cannot be achieved with existing policy tools, unquote. Tell us more about why defaults can be useful and what the research has shown.
1: Sure. So the idea of setting defaults is really very simple. Let's take a concrete example of trying to increase the amount that people save for retirement, which is something of great concern to policymakers. At present in the U.S., we spend about $100 billion per year on tax subsidies for retirement saving. So these are exemptions in terms of taxes on 401Ks or IRAs, reductions in tax rates on those accounts, all intended to kind of make saving more attractive and increase the amount people save. But a different way that you might approach the problem motivated by behavioral economics is to say, well, let's just set the default amount that people contribute to their 401k or to their IRA to say something like 2% of their paycheck. So the way this might work is every time you get paid, 2% of your paycheck gets set aside as a contribution to your IRA for retirement savings. And you'd always have the option to change that default, and if you choose to do so, set it uh, back to zero so that you're not saving anything for your retirement in that account, or you might want to save more, etc. Now research shows that lots of people, something like 75 or 80% of people, essentially follow whatever default their employer or the government sets. And so what that means is by setting the default, that is basically giving people an opt-out policy where they can always choose to make a change if they want to do so, but the default is that they save, say, 2 or 3%, one ends up having a much larger effect on savings than these existing tax subsidies for example which cost the government a lot of money so in that way just simple changes in defaults can be a very powerful tool to change behavior.
0: Something for our listeners to know is that Illinois is drawing on the power of defaults to try and get its residents to save for retirement starting in 2017 most employed state residents who don't already have a retirement plan at work will be automatically enrolled in individual retirement accounts funded through a 3% deduction from their paychecks. It's a voluntary program, but people have to opt out of it if they don't want to participate. So that's a real-life application. Raj, in your AEA speech, you also mentioned the concept of salience as a tool from the behavioral sciences that policymakers should keep in mind. Tell us more about that.
1: Right. So Uh, Again, the idea here is that simple changes in policies that we might not traditionally think of, not kind of dollars and cents budget changes, can have quite substantial effects. So the idea of salience is that people pay more attention to certain things that are kind of in their face relative to more subtle incentives. So to take one concrete example, uh, consider subsidies for buying energy-efficient hybrid cars. A recent paper shows that if you give those subsidies in the form of a sales tax rebate at the point of purchase of the car, you have seven times as large an effect on hybrid car sales as if you give an equivalent dollar amount in the form of an income tax rebate when people later file their income taxes. And the logic is very simple. If it's a sales tax rebate, the dealer can tell you, look, you're going to get an extra 1000 or $1,500 dollars if you buy this car right now, whereas if it's an income tax rebate, you don't get that money up front. You've got to kind of think, oh, later on when I file my income taxes, I've got to remember to file these extra forms, and then I'll get this money. And that just ends up having much less of an effect on consumer behavior. So that's changing the policy from an income tax rebate to a sales tax rebate. doesn't necessarily cost the government any more money but it makes the policy much more effective. So that shows you the potential effects of salience.
0: And a third concept that you talked about was loss aversion. Tell us about that.
1: So the idea of loss aversion is that people tend to be much more sensitive to losses in income relative to where they currently are than gains in income. So recognizing that insight, which actually goes back in the psychology literature over 30 years and is a very robust fact, Uh, one can exploit that in the policy context as follows. So in a very different domain, take an example in education where, say, we're trying to motivate teachers to exert more effort in the classroom and bring up their student achievement, consider two different types of policies. One is a bonus given to teachers when their students do well. Another is a salary increase, which is then taken back if the students don't meet certain performance standards. So again, both of these policies cost the government the same amount of money. But recent work shows that the second approach, which gives the teachers money up front and then takes it away, as opposed to giving a bonus, has significantly larger effects on teacher performance and student achievement. So once again, just exploiting insights from psychology to uh, improve the efficiency of existing economic policies.
0: Any final pieces of advice, Raj, for policymakers who want to do more with these types of insights one suggestion I suppose is that if you're at a state or local level connect with your local university and see if there's an economist there who might have an interest in these subjects who can help you think about policy challenges in new ways
1: yeah that's right and I think it's about also just thinking outside the standard parameters of economics training that we usually say you know we need to take a program like the earned income tax credit well Usually what we focus on is what is the subsidy rate in the earned income tax credit and how much is it affecting people's wages and the amount they work and so on. But often just the common sense idea that maybe many people don't know about the earned income tax credit and they don't know how it works and simple outreach programs that give people more information about these existing policies could actually have really profound effects Some of this, I think, is just going back to almost common sense thinking the way a layperson would and not necessarily somebody who's thinking about policy issues all day. And, you know, I think that brings a different perspective on these problems.
0: That concludes part one of our conversation. Look for part two in the near future. The topic will be administrative data, also known as big data and why policymakers at the local, state, and federal levels should care about providing access to this type of program data to researchers while still protecting privacy. But for now, my thanks to Raj Chetty for joining us and for sharing his insights about behavioral economics. Raj, thank you.
1: Thank you. My pleasure.